from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On this episode of Newt's World, On Wednesday, August 24th, the world watched as a plane fell out of the sky outside of Moscow. On board were 10 people, including the leader of Russia's Wagner mercenary group, Evgeny Prigozhin. Speculation followed that Prigozhin was on another plane and had outsmarted Putin, but it turned out not to be the case. Prigozhin's death was confirmed by Russian authorities the following Sunday after investigators used genetic testing to identify all the victims of the plane crash. The accident raised many questions about how the plane had crashed. For those who follow Putin, the answer seemed obvious. Here to talk about Putin and the death of Prigozhin, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, George Beebe, the Director of Grand Strategy at Quincy Institute. George, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. My pleasure. Thank you. Can you talk about who Yevgeny Prigozhin was and what his relationship with Putin was like? Well, Prigozhin was somebody that was more or less a street thug during the Soviet period. He grew up in Leningrad, as it was called back in the Soviet days, and was actually convicted of theft and served many years in a Soviet prison. When the Soviet Union broke up, Prigozhin, like a lot of people of his social standing, took advantage of the lack of governance that ensued as Russia more or less imploded during the 1990s, drew upon his criminal world connections and managed to start some businesses. He became a street vendor and then parlayed that into a catering business and drew upon his connections in the St. Petersburg world, where Putin had also grown up, to get some contracts with the government and ultimately sign some very large catering contacts with the Kremlin. 
and found himself, I won't use the word self-made millionaire because he didn't succeed on his intellectual talents. He succeeded on his unscrupulous willingness to do whatever was necessary to make money. And in, in the 1990s in Russia, there were a lot of opportunities for people like that. When the Ukraine civil war broke out in 2014 and parts of Ukraine's eastern regions declared independence, the so-called Donetsk People's Republic and Lugansk People's Republic, the Russians provided all but overt support to those movements. The Russians never formally acknowledged they were providing actual military aid there, but in fact, Russian military commanders were helping the militias in that part of Ukraine fight back against the Ukrainian government. And that's where Wagner really got its start. Prigozhin managed to win a contract with the Russian government to take a private militia, which became known as the Wagner Group, and provide military support and fighters to those self-declared people's republics in Ukraine. And he then parlayed that into contracts in Syria, where Wagner had a very prominent role once Russia intervened there militarily, and in Africa as well. So ultimately, Prigozhin and his company had a contract which the Kremlin has said in retrospect was worth about a billion dollars for all these kinds of services. Now, you know, he was regarded as a friend of Putin. In retrospect, I think one has to wonder just how close that personal relationship was. I mean, my sense is that they operated in an amazing number of countries and were a significant unofficial arm of the Russian government. Yeah, I think that's right. They had a lot of contracts in a lot of places in the world to perform various military and security functions. So they were operating as palace guards. They were operating as private intelligence gathering organizations. They were providing actual military fighters in many of these cases. And in doing so, they were getting paid not only by the Russian government, but also by the host governments in many cases. For example, in Libya, they were operating on behalf of a rebel warlord there, Haftar. And the, the situation was so messy that it becomes quite difficult to figure out who is officially whom there. Parts of these contracts included the right to sell and exploit oil or other natural resources that they managed to liberate, quote unquote. That was the case in Syria. They had some contracts whereby if they could take control of oil fields that the Assad government there did not control, that rebels control, that they would gain a share of the proceeds from whatever was recovered. So in your mind, were they an extension of Russian power or are they sort of a private sector group doing the most they can, but really driven by their desire for profit? rather than serving the Russian state? Well, I think a little of both. And what's interesting about the Wagner situation is that the lines between those two are very blurry. Clearly, I think the Russian government saw that Wagner could perform some useful services for the state. That was true in Ukraine, where last year in the war, the Kremlin was actually quite dependent on Wagner and its ability to bring 
tens of thousands of fighters to the war and provide a lot of expertise in urban combat that essentially offloaded a good portion of the burden of this war and the casualties that the war entailed onto a private organization rather than on the regular Russian military and on conscripts. I think Putin's hope was that by outsourcing some of the burden of the war to Wagner, he could avoid some of the political ramifications that might have been more difficult for him with popular opinion in Russia. Why were they more effective? What was there about the Wagner group that made them more effective than most Russian units? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one, a lot of the people that Prigozhin recruited early in the war in Ukraine got their start in military intelligence and in special operations. So, these were guys that had seen combat before. They were highly trained. They were very good. And they fought a style of war that was a little different than the regular Russian military. The regular Russian military is very hierarchical and very top down and is designed to fight a war of attrition, essentially, to take advantage of Russia's comparative advantages, which are size and mass, great industrial manufacturing capability. That's what won the war for the Soviet military over Nazi Germany in World War II. You know, you don't innovate a lot. You don't cede a lot of initiative to local commanders. You keep everybody in line and you just wear down the other side over time. That's not the way Russian special operations fights. They do tricky things, sneaky things. And when you're in urban combat, that can be useful. Now, the other thing that they brought to the table was they recruited a lot of people who we might call undesirables. Putin gave Prigozhin permission to recruit from Russian prisons and to offer them amnesty in return for fighting in Ukraine. And a lot of these prisoners took that deal. This was a good deal from their point of view, a path to freedom ultimately. But this also meant that Wagner was willing to take very high casualties because they viewed a number of their rank and file fighters as expendable. So this was an advantage too. The regular Russian military did not want to sacrifice tens of thousands of people on the battlefield in this war. They were happy to outsource that to the war. So this was why Wagner was useful, I think, to Putin in Ukraine. But I think he made a fundamental error. He assumed that he could empower Prigozhin and Wagner with little danger that they would become political actors in Russia in their own right. And that proved to be an unwise gamble. Prigozhin became an increasingly active political player in his own right. And as we saw a few weeks ago, eventually challenged the Russian government and Russian military directly. You know, that to me was very strange in that you couldn't tell whether Prigozhin had sort of let all this go to his head because he starts out by publicly attacking the Russian military and Putin and saying that they weren't providing ammunition, they were getting his guys killed. And then he mutinies, in effect. And then halfway through what looked like a moderately successful mutiny, he caves in. Now, surely given Putin's general background, 
Pagosian must have realized that to give in after you have risen in rebellion virtually guarantees you'll get killed. What do you think his reasoning was? Well, Prigozhin gambled in part because he was increasingly panicking over the situation that he and Wagner were finding themselves in. Once they had taken the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, which was a very long, very bloody battle in which Wagner lost a lot of men, Wagner was no longer as important to Putin in the Russian military as it had been. Back in 2022, Putin had not yet mobilized much of the Russian population for war. The Kremlin was far more dependent on Wagner for manpower and fighting. But after the Ukrainians succeeded with some of their offensive actions last summer and early last fall, Putin bit the bullet and announced what he called a partial mobilization. And that brought several hundred thousand more Russian fighters to Ukraine. Once that happened, Wagner was no longer as important to the Russian military effort as it had been in 2022. And then once Bakhmut ended successfully, once Wagner had captured Bakhmut, the Russians really didn't need Wagner. And that meant that with Putin's permission, the Russian military command announced that Wagner fighters would be required to sign contracts with the regular Russian military as of this past July 1st. Well, that announcement, I think, caused Prigozhin to panic because he saw the gravy train coming to an end for Wagner. Once you see your forces your fighters being forced to sign contracts with the regular Russian military, he realized, okay, my income is going to go down fairly dramatically. The other part of this was a little bit of a culture clash. A lot of Wagner's senior military commanders, guys that came out of military intelligence and special operations, don't like the regular Russian military. And this is not actually unusual in any militaries in the world. You know, there's a culture difference between your special ops people and your regular military people. The special ops people think they're elite. They think they're better. They're more courageous. They're better fighters, et cetera, et cetera. They fight a different style than the regular military. And there's a lot of mutual disdain between those cultures. That was certainly true in the Russian military as well. So the prospect that the senior commanders in Wagner were looking at was not only was their income going to take a big hit, but suddenly they were going to have to be put under the command of people that they didn't respect and didn't want to fight for. So under those circumstances, they faced an alternative. You either submit to this directive or you say no. And you know, a few thousand of the Wagner group said no. And they decided they were going to use the leverage that they had to try to strike a better bargain, to force the senior military command and Putin to change that order. And that, I think, was ultimately the motivation for turning their forces and marching on Moscow. Now, they made a miscalculation. You can't take four or 5,000 fighters, which is, I think, by most reports, what they had march up a highway <laughs> several hundred miles to Moscow with no air force and no air cover, essentially, and expect you're going to take on the Russian military and win. 
the only way that could have succeeded would have been if significant elements of the Russian military itself defected and threw their weight behind Prigozhin. And Prigozhin must have believed that some of that would have happened, but it turned out he was wrong. No units defected. He got no support from anybody. And he was left in a situation where he's got a few thousand people on the outskirts of Moscow, much like the proverbial dog that caught the car, right? What do you do now? And he was left with a very bad set of choices. He wasn't going to win. And now Putin also had an incentive to strike a deal, too. You know, one of the worst outcomes of this for Putin would have been some sort of prolonged urban clash between the regular Russian military and Wagner. Urban fighting is difficult to do. It's very bloody. You can't do it without a lot of damage and a lot of civilian casualties. It would have bogged the Russian military down internally and probably allowed the Ukrainians to exploit that problem to make real gains on the battlefield in Ukraine. So that was an outcome that Putin really wanted to avoid. And so he had a big incentive to strike a deal with Prigozhin as well, which he did. Now, in retrospect, whatever it was that Putin agreed to and Prigozhin agreed to obviously didn't last all that long. But I think Putin managed to avoid the worst case outcomes in this uprising. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March to the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority 
tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Go to gingrich360.com book and order your copy now. Order it today at gingrich360.com book. What would you say are the odds that Putin was in some direct way responsible for the plane going down? High. I don't think we're ever going to know definitively what happened, but the circumstances are such that anybody would have to be awfully suspicious that Putin was involved in taking Prigozhin down in some way. This particular aircraft has a sparkling safety record. These planes just don't go down, particularly not in good weather conditions, which they were. And it just so happened that not only Prigozhin, but several of his other senior commanders are on board this plane. The chances that this was a coincidence are, I think, infinitesimally low. Now, I think we're probably going to wind up with a situation where the Kremlin tries to blame this crash on Ukraine or the United States or both. But very few people are going to buy that. There's absolutely no benefit to Ukraine or the United States in taking Prigozhin out. Yes, he's somebody that had a lot of enemies. Absolutely, that's correct. But I doubt anybody in Russia would act against him without Putin's at least tacit blessing. Well, and doesn't that sort of fit a Putin pattern of cheerfully killing his opponents? Well, certainly he has done that in a number of occasions, yes. It's a very tough dictatorship. Well, it is. You know, Russian politics is a full contact sport. It's not for the faint of heart. And I guess it always has been. That's right. Except maybe for three months in 1917. (laughs) Yes. Then it turned out Kerensky was too Western to effectively govern Russia. Yeah, well, it's a very difficult country to govern. Physically very large and very difficult to enforce discipline. And Anybody that's read a lot of Russian literature realizes that Russian bureaucrats are masters of the art of feigned compliance. So it's not an easy place to run, no question. Do you agree with those who suggest that we shouldn't assume that Putin would be replaced by somebody better, but that in fact he might be replaced by somebody even more authoritarian and more anti-Western? Yes, I think if Putin were replaced in some sort of extra constitutional way, the chances that it would be a liberal, Western-loving Gorbachev type are very low. First of all, many Russians still remember the 1990s. They have no fondness for what Russia went through during that time. A lot of them blame Gorbachev for being naive, for not understanding the West's bad intentions toward Russia as they see them. So are there liberals in Russia? Are there people that are pro-Western? Yes, there are. Are they anywhere close to being a substantial political force in Russia right now? No, they're not. Most of the dynamism on the Russian political spectrum is on the right. Nationalists and patriots who actually believe that Putin has been too soft in dealing with the West, too quick to want to strike compromises naive in his understanding of American and and German and French intentions. So it's not impossible to imagine that we could get a more moderate leader as a successor to Putin. But I don't think that's the most likely scenario by a long shot right now. I mean, isn't there a significant faction that actually thinks 
they should use nuclear weapons and they should exert real force? Well, certainly there is a large faction that believes that Russia has not been decisive enough, has been too timid in using the military capabilities that Russia has against Ukraine, too wary of potential Western reactions. In fact, Sergei Karaganov has been a long time, very prominent foreign policy intellectual in Russia, published an article a couple of months ago saying that Russia ought to use a tactical nuclear weapon because the West has lost its fear of nuclear war. And that loss of fear is actually a destabilizing factor in the world, that the shared fear of nuclear war actually was one of the primary stabilizing elements during the Cold War, according to his argument. And I do have some sympathy for that perspective. But today, nobody believes that nuclear war is possible anymore. Nobody fears it. And hence, they're willing to take risks and do things that nobody would have done back in the Cold War days, like trying to put NATO forces on Russia's border, as we have been doing and from Russia's perspective are continuing to try to do in Ukraine. So the solution to this is let's use a nuke or restore the fear of nuclear war. And that will ultimately not only end the war in Ukraine, but usher back in an extended period of stability in the world. Now, Karaganov's argument was refuted by a number of other Russian foreign policy commentators in the aftermath of this article. But the fact that he would write something like this, I think, is an indication that there are substantial numbers of people in Russia that are arguing for a much harder line approach. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. You're a real expert in this area. Are you surprised at the course of the 
campaign in Ukraine? I would say I have been surprised tactically by some of the twists and turns that the war has taken over the last 18 months, but not strategically. By that, I mean, I was not surprised that the Russians invaded. In fact, I had been warning for quite some time that something like this was coming. I've not been surprised that the Russians have been unable to seize Ukraine as a whole to capture Kiev, to put in place a pro-Russian puppet government. Those were things that I thought were beyond Russia's capabilities. But I have been surprised at some of the ineptitude that the Russian military has shown, some of the failures of intelligence that were glaringly obvious early in the war. I had thought that the Russians had a better intelligence handle on what was going on in Ukraine and how the Ukrainians might respond to things than they demonstrated early in the war. Some of the tactical twists, the Russians made some glaring you know, military errors. They left large stretches of their front lines in 2022 pretty lightly defended. And the Ukrainians took advantage of that quite impressively. Now, I think the Russians have engaged in some learning behavior. They've corrected some of these problems. They've gotten their act together militarily to a much greater degree than they had last year. But it's been a painful process. And the degree of Russian ineptitude has surprised me. Why do you think General Milley said publicly that they'd be in Kiev in three days? I mean, was there a serious American estimate of that? Oh, I doubt there was a serious American estimate of three days, but I do think that most people looked at the correlation of forces between Ukraine and Russia on paper and thought that this was not going to be a close war. I thought the Russians were going to be at the Dnieper River, you know, within weeks or months. And, you know, that obviously didn't happen. And they've got their hands full right now. Is that a function of their logistics system just being so bad? Well, that's part of it. Yeah, that's part of it. Part of it is, though, that they found themselves facing an opponent that had 24-7 real-time intelligence capabilities and battlefield awareness, which meant that the Ukrainians were able to play defense against the Russians quite well. They knew where they were. They knew what they were doing. They were able to identify them and target them in real time quite effectively. We've had a combination of traditional satellite intelligence collection, which is more advanced than it used to be back in the old days. The United States began flying AWACS aircraft outside Ukrainian airspace, but close enough that we had pretty full awareness of what the Russian air assets were doing. And that really helped the Ukrainians blunt what would otherwise have been quite significant Russian air dominance. And I think one of the assumptions a lot of people made was that the Russians would establish air superiority pretty quickly, and that would make it very hard for the Ukrainians to defend against what the Russians were doing. And that proved not to be the case. The Russians did not establish air superiority. And even now, although I think they've got much greater dominance of the year than they did a year ago, they're still not at the point where they can fly without real fear of Ukrainian targeting. And that's a big factor in the war. If we had moved all of our assistance up by a year and had done a year ago what we're now doing, 
would that have made much of a difference? You know, one of the things that we have tried to do from the start is strike a balance between giving the Ukrainians what they need to defend themselves and not going so far as to find ourselves in a direct military conflict with the Russians, which I think nobody wants. Over time, I think we have grown more confident that things that we thought were Russian red lines, and by that I mean things that would cause the Russians to retaliate directly against the United States or NATO, were not as firm as we had feared that they would be. So we've grown more confident that we can provide more than we thought we could without danger of crossing whatever that invisible line is into conflict with Russia directly. The problem, though, with saying, hey, if we'd given them everything right away really quickly, would that have made a difference? Well, you don't know where that red line really would be, because I think it's a mistake to assume that these red lines are permanent and fixed and that the Russians themselves know where they are. I think they're highly circumstantial. Things that the Russians might be willing to tolerate under one set of circumstances might be very different than what they'd be willing to tolerate under a different set of circumstances. And for me, one of the variables that affects the movement of that red line is, are the Russians in danger of really losing the war? You know, if they're in danger of really losing the war, I think suddenly they start doing things that are a lot riskier and a lot more likely to lead to a direct conflict with the United States and NATO than they would under conditions where they think, okay, you know, we don't like this, but can we win the war despite this? And that's where I think the Russians have been. They have settled on an attrition strategy that does not try to have sudden breakthroughs against the Ukrainians. They're not trying to outflank them, outmaneuver them. They're trying to wear them down over time to exhaust their reserves of manpower, to undermine Ukraine's ability to supply its forces, to generate new forces over time, wear down Ukraine's resilience politically and economically, and exhaust the West's patience. That is, as far as I can tell, is Putin's strategy for winning this war. And he thinks, I believe, that that's going fairly well right now, that there's no reason to do anything that would risk a direct conflict with NATO, because that would itself change the contours of this war and might wind up threatening Russia profoundly. So why risk that? Now, the other factor in providing a lot of stuff really quickly to the Ukrainians is they've got to be able to absorb it. They've got to be able to use it. They've got to be able to be trained on it. They've got to maintain it. And a lot of this weaponry is pretty complex. It takes American forces a long time to master it. You know, the F-16, you know, which is you know, discussed a lot about it right now. You know, let's provide them with F-16s and this will give Ukraine a big advantage in the skies, blunt the advantages that the Russians have had. That's an aircraft that requires many, many, many hours of maintenance for every hour of flight. It's a single engine fighter. It has to take off from pristine airstrips you know, in more or less perfect conditions. They actually vacuum these airstrips that the F-16s take off from so that it doesn't suck up debris and blow out an engine and, you know, wind up in the shop for repairs for many months. 
that's not a description of Ukrainian airfields. You know, Ukraine flies off of, you know, Soviet era airstrips that are in bad condition. And the Soviet planes that they've been flying are adapted to those conditions pretty well. The F-16s aren't. So, you know, these are all complicating factors that I think you have to take into account when you try to answer that question. You know, couldn't we have just given them a lot more a lot sooner? And would have that made a difference? I wonder. I don't think so. I've been surprised at the Ukrainian ingenuity with drones. And I was just reading this morning about this Australian-made cardboard drone, which has apparently taken out four Russian airplanes. The idea you're buying these like cardboard drones and they can fly several thousand miles. This is a different world. Well, it is. Drone warfare, drone technology, drone tactics. This war is going to end up revolutionizing the way these things are employed moving forward. And that's a fascinating part of all of this. I don't know that they have any meaning except psychological. But when you see them hit Moscow or an airfield just outside of Petersburg, that's a penetration I suspect Putin would have thought two years ago was impossible. No, yeah, I think that's right. What impact that's going to have on the war itself is hard to say exactly. These are, I believe, more psychologically damaging than militarily or physically damaging. Part of the reason why the Ukrainians are doing this, I think, is as an element in the information war, you know, trying to show their backers in the West that they're not losing, they still have prospects, they can reach out and touch Putin and his cohort in Russia. The effect that they're having on Russian popular opinion, also not easy to gauge, but my suspicion extrapolating from broader polling data in Russia is that they're having an effect similar to that of Russian airstrikes in Ukraine on Ukrainian opinion. Russian strikes in Ukraine are not causing Ukrainians to say, oh, well, this is just too hard. Let's find a way out of the war. It's, in fact, creating a rally around the flag effect, you know, stoking hatred against Russia, stoking Ukrainian resolve in the broader public. And I think that's happening in Russia. I think Russians are looking at this saying, hey, you know, we're actually fighting the U.S. and NATO, not just Ukraine. Ukraine is the cat's paw for Washington and Brussels and all of this. And they really do hate us. We really do need to fight. Do you think when Putin made the decision to go into Ukraine, that he had any notion that it would end up leading Sweden and Finland to join NATO? which strikes me as strategically a pretty big defeat. Well, no, I don't think he expected that. I think he was looking more narrowly at Ukraine. That said, I think it's still early to draw conclusions about the strategic impact of all of this. One of Putin's big bets in this war has been that the momentum in the broader world has been shifting from the United States and Europe to Asia and the global south. He's making a bet in this that the peak of American power, that unipolar moment, as someone once called it here in the United States, is over. That the United States has become a decadent power with big challenges internally that Europe is stagnating and geostrategically, Russia is better off 
aligning itself with China and Asia and the global South. In that context, does adding two countries to the NATO alliance really change the big strategic picture for Putin? My guess is that it's too soon to say. Now, what it does do, though, for the Russian military is it complicates their threat planning. They've got a lot more territory they've got to consider in all of this. And it tilts the conventional balance of power between Russia and NATO even further toward NATO. Now, Russia can't hope to build a conventional military strong enough to challenge the NATO alliance. What it can do and what I expect that it will do is increase its reliance on its nuclear force. We're already seeing the first steps toward that in Belarus. Both the Russians and the Belarusians have announced that the Russians have moved tactical nuclear forces onto Belarusian territory. That, to me, is not surprising. They've got to do something to compensate for their inability to fight and win a conventional war against an enlarged NATO alliance. But I think that's a very bad thing for Europe and probably a very bad thing for the United States, too, to see Europe renuclearized. Because we're probably going to be in a situation like the early 1980s when the Soviet Union deployed SS-20 intermediate range missiles pointed at Europe. The United States and NATO countered by bringing Pershing-2 missiles into Germany and other parts of Europe. And we found ourselves on a nuclear hair trigger in Europe. We had warning times measured in a handful of minutes, highly unstable. And I think that's where we're heading. We're heading toward a renuclearized Europe with very, very short warning times, but one that unlike in the 1980s, we have no structure of arms control or any kind of dialogue to try to mitigate the risks of all of this. So I think we're headed toward a very dangerous outcome in all of this. So yeah, Putin got something he didn't want in NATO enlargement, but I think the end result is going to be bad for everybody, not just bad for Russia. So in that context, don't you think they've already moved tactical nukes into their enclave between Poland and Germany? Kaliningrad, yes. Well, they've had tactical nukes stored there for several decades. It's a mile per square mile, probably the most nuclearized part of the planet, which makes it highly dangerous in my view. We're always in this sort of zero-one situation where if you cross over, you're in a world so much more frightening and so much more violent that even as violent as things look right now, they would pale into insignificance compared to a real nuclear exchange. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's right. Unfortunately, I don't think it's just going to be tactical nukes that the Russians are going to be moving into the European theater. I think they're going to be moving theater level nuclear weapons you know, like the SS-20s that can cover you know, a lot of distance in a big hurry and are very difficult to contend with. I mean, it does become a balance of terror again. That's right. But the balance of terror was always mitigated by an arms control component in which we were talking to each other. You know, one of the most valuable things about arms control, in my view, was not the limits themselves, but the dialogue that these arrangements required, we had to meet with each other and talk to each other about implementation. 
a lot of those discussions were quite contentious, you know, accusations, counter accusations, et cetera, et cetera. But we were talking. And that, I think, was a critical part of this. Right now, we're not talking. We probably have less understanding of the decision process in the Kremlin today than we did at any point during the Cold War. No, that's right. Our dialogue with Moscow today is far less than it was at any point in the Cold War. No, it's very sobering. And listen, I want to thank you. I think as a citizen, taking your lifetime commitment to understanding Russia, understanding the American security needs, and continuing to work at it, you're an invaluable asset for those of us who would like to have an intelligent, effective, and safe national security approach. So I really appreciate it. This has been fascinating. It's great to talk to somebody with the depth of knowledge you have. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you to my guest, George Beebe. You can learn more about the death of Prigozhin on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR.
NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids. No plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. 